0: My friends, it's been Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured.
2: What a real treat to be with you each and every Saturday. A big thanks to Brian Croft and Gordon Kolodny at Cedars for making this happen. And a big thank you to Cedars-Sinai, my hospital. For 31 years, I'm so proud of the institution that is Cedars and all that it brings. Last week, you heard my favorite colon and rectal surgeon. In October, we're going to talk to a brand new, young and upcoming star, a foot and ankle surgeon. It's just great to bring you the world of surgery, the world of sports. Today, we're going to have the coach of USA Surfing Team, Brett Simpson, and then to bring artists from the Getty Museum, Robert Trento, Claire Cunny. It's great to mix it up. When I knew my guest at 815 today was coming on to talk about taking the USA Olympic Surfing Team to Waco, Texas to practice and master the wave conditions that are in Japan, it made me think all week about those worlds that I love of art, sports, and surgery. Where do you master the surface in these fields? And it took me back in art and in music and in dance to the revolution of Michael Jackson in 1983. Billie Jean had just come out And he now is asked to go to the Motown 25th Anniversary show on TV and sings Billie Jean. But he also changes the world of dance forever by making this optical illusion called a moonwalk. It was a dance step originally called the backslide. But the masterful technique of using the dance floor to go sideways, not to jump up, not to jump down, was Michael Jackson mastering a surface. Let's listen to his brother, Jermaine Jackson, who was behind the curtain with everybody else from Motown, watching the master change the world before our eyes. Let's go to number two.
3: Michael didn't know what he was going to do on Billie Jean. And everything that you saw him do, he made it up on the spot. And it was just unbelievable. And I was backstage doing his performance on Billie Jean with Smokey and The Temptations and The Four Tops and Gladys and everybody. They were just in awe.
2: These are the greatest artists of all time. And their jaws dropped. Listen to Smokey Robinson, who was there, talking about the greatest names in Motown history. But it was clear when they say, you're the man, no, you're the man. The greatest entertainer of all time was Michael Jackson. Listen to Smokey Robinson taking us back to that moment. Number three.
3: Every person who had ever had anything to do with Motown showed up that night. Everybody. When he performed Billy Jean." That was it. <laughs> I mean, the only thing to do after that was the finale. I'll
2: probably remember that moment to the day I
0: die. The place was full of, you know, ex Motown stars. And they just went balmy when he did that backwards walk. I mean, it was just a
3: magical moment in time.
2: In this next soundbite, you'll actually hear the ovation he got when he did it for the first time. This is Suzanne DePass from Motown. She was an executive. She really describes it as a seminal moment in the course of music and dance, 1983, that night, number four.
3: It became the seminal moment of his television career. That night, he crossed over into a whole new audience.
2: And here's his sister, LaToya Jackson, telling us the secret behind the moonwalk. It was Jeffrey Daniels who taught him. Jeffrey Daniels, one of the greatest dancers, as a teacher, teaching Michael Jackson. Number six. No, number five.
3: The moonwalk was a dance that the kids were doing on the streets. And Michael came along later, and he had a guy by the name of Jeffrey Daniels to teach him to do the moonwalk and Jeffrey taught him to do the moonwalk and he was good at it and when he did it everybody saw it and just thought this was the most wonderful thing they had ever seen not really knowing it was a dance that was already out there.
2: I want you to hear Jeffrey Daniels himself speak but pay attention when he uses the word illusion. A little bit later you're going to hear Lee Trevino talking about swinging a golf club mastering the surface of the ground again it's an illusion you want to hit the ball and pop it up you actually have to hit down on the ball it's the opposite the illusion in this dance move is it looks like he's going forward but he's going backwards that's the secret to mastering something everybody else goes to the left you go to the right you do the opposite And when you do that, that's where genius is made. Let's listen to Jeffrey Daniels talk about teaching Michael Jackson the backslide, better known as the moonwalk, number six.
3: The backslide is actually supposed to be like um, if you were to be walking forward and suddenly you're on an escalator. And as you're walking forward, this escalator is now pulling you backwards as you're continuing to walk forward that's the illusion of the backslide and the moonwalk is that you're actually walking but the ground is pulling you back and if you can do it with that illusion then you're doing it more or less looking like you're pulling yourself back like your legs are tugging you back it's not supposed to look that way
2: jeffrey daniels kept saying it's called the backslide michael jackson said no it's not i'm gonna call it the moonwalk this is hilarious. Number
3: seven. Michael called it the moonwalk, which actually the moonwalk is another dance. The moonwalk is actually a dance that we do that makes it look like you're on the moon and it's less gravity than you would have on earth. Michael somehow called the backslide the moonwalk and commercially I think maybe it, it, it worked.
2: Uh, you think? I think it worked. Thank you very much. Number eight.
3: Michael is funky. He's James Brown type of funky and he dances inside the music. When I was dancing with the electric boogaloos and we're doing body popping, it was never one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It was just, pow, bam, pow, bang. We didn't count. We just went by sound effects and we danced inside the music with the beat. And that's, and that's how it was. And that's how Michael dances.
2: I love that term dancing inside the music. I'm going to ask Brett Simpson, Is he trying to get our surfers, our American surfers, to surf inside the wave, inside the water? Lee Trevino went inside the turf, inside the golf ball.
3: Fascinating. Number nine Michael is a workaholic. He He never goes, okay, I'm tired, let's go, okay, let's quit. That's how determined he is and I guess that's why he became the greatest entertainer in the world. I remember I saw him in Japan um, during the history tour. I mean, he shot up from the bottom of the stage and landed on the stage and just stood there. People are crying and screaming and he hasn't even moved yet. He hasn't even moved, and they're crying and screaming.
2: He's godlike to them. Powerful when you can dance inside the music and do a moonwalk and give that illusion of doing the opposite. That's a talent, because your brain tells you one thing, but you're doing something else. Lee Trevino, growing up dirt poor in Texas, he doesn't have someone teaching him how to play golf. He taught himself how to play golf which is why he has a swing like nobody else. But he became one of the greatest ball strikers ever because he taught himself all that matters is how you make contact with the ball. But you got to fight what your brain wants to do with what your subconscious needs to do. It's kind of like Steph Curry playing in the dark gym with a strobe light blinking on and off teaching his brain to make his shot a reflex. Not think about the three-point shot. It has to, the ball has to get into his hands, quick release, it's a reflex, not a conscious thought. Same thing, listen to Lee Trevino break it down. Number one.
0: the subconscious mind is the strongest thing in your body. And it'll get you to do things that you actually don't want to do. But once you start thinking about it, so what happens when you pull a wedge out? What happens when you pull a 56-degree wedge out and you got to go over a bunker? You're gonna have you're gonna help the ball up. You're always gonna to flip to help the ball up, and then all of a sudden you blade it or, or, or you hit behind it. Why? Because the bounce of the club now, if that sand wedge had 12 degrees of loft of the bounce on it and all of a sudden you release it, now you're, you're increasing it by six degrees. Now you've got 17, 18 degrees of bounce. You're never going to get under the golf ball.
2: A golfer carries 14 clubs in his bag. The reason is each club has a different angle of the blade to the shaft of the club. The bottom of the club is called the bounce. And if you're in a sand trap or you want to pitch the ball and make it pop up onto the green, It's the opposite. To make that ball pop up, you actually have to hit down on it. Lee Trevino realized that. No teacher ever taught him that. But getting your brain and body to do it is a whole different story. And he was the best ever at doing it. Number two.
0: In other words, the only way that you can get under a golf ball is you have to hit down on a golf ball. You never hit up on a ball, you hit down on it. You compress it into the ground. In other words, and it's almost that the left wrist is almost broken here. When you hit it, it's this way. And the, the wedge comes compressed down into the ground. Now you utilize, what happens when you compress a golf ball in the ground? It goes up the club face. When you flip a wedge or any club here, the ball is only gonna utilize the bottom two grooves. It's
2: never gonna use the top ones. And here he tells you the secret he learned this as a child growing up in the backwoods of texas playing almost on concrete not on beautiful manicured grass not with sand traps but on texas clay hard pan you better master the surface otherwise you ain't playing golf in texas where he grew up number three so i i learned a long time ago but that again that was from playing on hard pan
0: at tennyson park i mean this you could have put card pad there's no card pads on that course because you don't need them because the ground was that hard everything was a card path there the ground is just that old black clay if you've ever been to texas you can't get it off your shoes and once it gets hard and baked out i, I mean it, you, you've got to punch everything and that's where i learned to punch this little wedge number four now I never used to put as much spin on it. You know why? Because the the club would bounce right off the ground. Then when I came on tour and got soft fairways, you understand And I tried that shot, I mean, that ball would
2: squeeze right up that blade. He would hit twice and check. And here's Lee Trevino's biographer, Sam Blair, teaching us where Lee Trevino came from to become one of the greatest golfers of all time. Number 10.
0: I've never known anybody else in any walk of life to follow a similar path to go from
4: abject poverty to rise to to the heights, like Lee Trevino did. Before he was a U.S. Open champion, before he was one of the greatest and most popular golfers of his time, before he was anyone that anyone ever heard of, Lee Buck Trevino was the grandson of a Mexican gravedigger in Texas, a boy who never met his father a child who couldn't have dreamed of the life in front of him, even if he tried. Mm.
2: And number 12.
4: Lee's granddaddy. During the week, his grandfather took Lee along with him to work, where his lessons were simple but essential.
3: He took a lot of pride in in digging a grave. And he would show Lee, you know, this is how you keep the edges square. And this is how you do it so that, you know, the casket will fit correctly.
4: On one side of the ramshackle Trevino home was the cemetery. On the other was the sixth fairway of the Dallas Athletic Club, which meant golf balls would land on the lawn often. Balls that the young Trevino discovered he could collect
2: and sell. Number 13. They had a little three-hole course behind the Caddyshack over there and they'd get out there and play and he, he was doing well there in, in Charlotte. After eighth grade, he decided to just drop out and get a job and make what he could
4: and keep playing golf. So he'd spend his teen years not in high school, but on the golf course caddying, teaching himself the game. Then on December 1st, 1956, his 17th birthday,
2: he joined the Marines. He taught himself the game, number 14.
4: I was
0: dead broke. I actually was unemployed at the time, so I was just playing a lot of golf. And someone said, uh, you know, U.S. Open's coming up, thinking about qualifying for it. Tried it, had to go to Odessa and uh, qualified. He's like a fish out of water. I mean, the, the course is like nothing he's ever seen before. You have to understand that I learned to play with no rough, no bunkers. Oh God, I didn't, I don't think I had 14 clubs. I didn't have a sandwich because i never been in a bunker. <laughs> I had a McGregor 11 is That's what I had. And that baby was sharp enough to, to, I mean, to cut a stake.
2: Because <laughs> he filed it himself. And finally, this is the 1968 U.S. Open. Jack Nicklaus is in the lead. You'll even hear some of the sound bites of Chris Schenkel calling the tournament. And hear him say, here comes Trevino. History was made because Lee Trevino mastered the surface of golf. Number fifteen.
4: As he fell back to earth, Trevino grabbed the lead, and even with Nicholas charging, refused to falter.
0: He hit the flagstick.
4: You could not say he's lacking in boldness. And what a shot! It's gone. <laughs> USGA official Joe Dye trailed Trevino on the course. And as he watched one remarkable shot after another, Dye was unable to contain his amazement. He said, what are you trying to do, win the Open?
0: I said, whether you like it or not, I said, you're going to have a Mexican as a U.S. Open champion.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I remember it like yesterday. That's exactly what I told him. I love you, Lee Trevino. God bless you. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk about Mastering the Surface. In another sport, the sport of surfing, because of the genius idea of the coach, Brett Simpson. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. You're listening to the Weekend
4: Warrior Show presented by Cedar Sinai. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant. Hi. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I'm Big Clapper. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. If everybody
2: had an ocean, Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I'm so excited to introduce you to our next guest, the great Brett Simpson. Coach Simpson. Brett, thanks so much for making time to be with us. Thank you, Dr. Clapper. happy Saturday. Happy Saturday, I wanna give a shout out and a thanks to Jared Abrams and and Rebecca Becky for making this happen. I wanna play a soundbite for you, Brett Simpson, because it is your futuristic thinking and genius idea to take the team, the surfing team to Texas so they can master the waves of Japan. I want you to listen to a soundbite of mastering a surface like Michael Jackson did doing the moonwalk in 1983 but specifically the teacher his coach Jeffrey Daniels talking about how Michael Jackson dances inside the music different than other people let's go to number
3: eight Michael is funky he's James Brown type of funky and he dances inside the music dancing with the uh, electric boogaloos and we're doing body popping it was never one two three four five six seven it was just pow bam pow bang we didn't count we just went by sound effects and we danced inside the music with the beat and, and that's and that's how it was and that's how michael dances
2: you're surfers brett simpson they surf inside the water inside the wave how do you, what do you think about when you hear that analysis of Michael Jackson from his dance coach i couldn't i
1: couldn't agree more and when we're, when we have our athletes that are when we're surfing their connection to the wave is is the most important thing and i think if they're a second off you know in and in and out of maneuvers you you'll really be able to see it and i think the beauty of of our athletes right now is they're at the top of their game. We've got four of the best Americans. And if, like I said, if they're a split second off, uh, you know, dancing inside of that wave, you, it, you make that mistake.
2: And it's very critical. I saw a, an interview with Kelly Slater once. I can't seem to find it anymore. But I saw where he said when he looks at the wave, which is nothing but circular. It's a curl, yep. he sees it as flats, a series of flat surfaces that he can launch from. He actually, we all see a tube, he sees flat surfaces. Steve Paulette, play this soundbite of Johnny Miller talking about what makes Lee Trevino, who mastered the surface in golf, so special and so different, number six.
0: A lot of the great ball strikers, that's the one characteristic is instead of just swinging in a circle when they get in this area here, they go down after it like that and um, you can learn a lot from that. I did that in my, my game probably from watching Trevino. Byron Nelson did that move.
2: They don't swing in a circle. What do you think of Kelly Slater or you Brett Simpson and your surfers? We all see a round tube but seeing launching points on a round tube yeah well
1: that's the angles that we're kind of trying to create and if we're not obviously inside of the tube we're trying to find the most critical pocket where you can have the most explosive maneuver and that's where we garner our points so mm. each surfer is looking at different areas that will create the biggest maneuver
2: on that on that section Hmm. What a great idea you came up with, Brett Simpson, of trying to mimic Japan. I think the listener doesn't really understand how much harder it is to win a gold medal in small waves. You would think, oh, no, the bigger the company, the bigger the wave. But actually, on many levels, it's easier to surf a giant wave than it is a small wave. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, it, it's very tricky. You know, small waves, I think, are something very different because you have to generate your own speed. And depending on where a lot of people grow up, um, some are better than others. If you grew up in Florida, you blew, You know, you grew up in Southern California, you really know how to generate your speed on some of the smaller waves. Where if you grew up in Hawaii, you're used to the big stuff and you're, you're used to kind of controlling that speed. So
2: there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of variations. Hmm. Just to simplify it, because we have listeners of this show from all over. Many of them appreciate surfing, but not to the extent that you have an appreciation for it. So teach us the difference between a point break and a beach break and what you might do with it as a surfer and as the coach of USA Surfing.
1: Yeah. So, so a point break usually will give you longer lines. Um, going whether they're each direction, right or left, you get more combination maneuvers, lo- lot longer waves where the beach break scenario kind of creates shorter waves, shorter intervals in between the waves. So they're more, the quicker waves impactful. So we're talking maybe one or two maneuvers, um, maybe a little tube ride
2: and possibly an aerial to, you know, get the high, high scores. Hmm. Being the coach of the team, Brett, do you sometimes feel like you're the father figure for these youngsters? Yeah, you know, I I have a great relationship with a
1: lot of our athletes. So we've kind of been around each other over the years. Um, You know, when they're when they're this high at this level, it's more being that backbone for the questions they have, you know, and learning Keep learning on little things that they want to get better at because they're already so good. It's just nitpicking little things that will kind of help their game evolve even
2: more. Hmm. I want to go through the team because many of the listeners, maybe they've heard of Kelly Slater, who's an alternate. But I'd just love to go through some of them, where they're from. And what about them makes them uniquely, each one of them, so special? So let's start with one of the greatest to come out of the North Shore, John John Florence. What is it about him and his surfing that is so special? Well, John John's been,
1: you know, uh, he was a prodigy from a young age, and he grew up on the North Shore of Oahu, which obviously has pipeline, you know, one of the, one of the heaviest waves in the world. And he's became this fearless... Um, kid from a young age and surf you know amazing waves and went on to you know qualify through the qualifiers which is you know in some mediocre surf and then ended up winning two world titles which is just astounding you know and now he's you know in regards probably one of the he is one of the best surfers in the world and also
2: one of the best aerialists in the world so (laughs) he's very special as an orthopedic surgeon who surfs, my break is up in Ventura, but you have two orthopedic stories that you'll be dealing with on your team. One is an ACL tear that John John Florence suffered that he's come back from, but the yep. other is Christian Bailey. Tell us a little bit about Christian Bailey. Yeah, Christian's amazing. He's, he's you know, he's he's
1: our backbone. He's such a great guy. He's put in so much work and... Uh Just for the organization in general we uh we love to have him the otter he 's always in the water, pushing everybody, so just uh the, you know he 's going to be doing
2: some airs at the wave pool i'm excited to see him but didn't he suffer a vertebral body fracture in his spine and was in a wheelchair and immobile for so long? It must be yeah. an amazing story for him to come back from that injury
1: yeah he I mean the guy's put in so much work to get back in the water um it's been a you know it's been an amazing process for him over the years and now to have him like we i've surfed with him at some of the u.s opens over the years and you know surfing with us also jesse billauer who who fractured his uh vertebrae and and mm-hmm. you know became paralyzed and it's uh just to get them in the water get them back to where they're the happiest and just that hurdle that they had to hop hop mentally and physically, you know, to Mm -hmm. to keep positive and keep, uh, keep in the water.
2: Brett, I want to talk a little bit about you and your background. And I want to talk about the women on the team. So can I just take a break, pay some bills? Can you hang on for another segment? I'll be here. Okay. Young man. Thanks so much. All right, Warriors. We're talking to the great Brett Simpson, the coach of our very own USA Olympic surfing team. Coming up next, we'll get into it, the girls on the team. Until then, you're listening to the Weekend Warriors Show here on 710 ESPN.
4: You're listening to the Weekend Warrior Show presented by Cedar Sinai. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant. You're not gonna leave me alone, are you? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, the Grand Poobah, the Big Kahuna. Every Saturday morning from seven to nine a.m. on ESPN, seven ten, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome
2: back, Weekend Warriors. Joined now by the coach of USA Surfing, Brett Simpson. You know, Brett, over 31 years, I've been an orthopedic surgeon, still at it, taking care of many athletes. But one of the highlights of my career was one day walking into my office was Bruce Brown. Dr. Clapper, you gotta fix my shoulder. And he ended up coming on, I did, and he came on as a guest on this show. Surfing, I spent the morning with Jerry Lopez at Pops in Honolulu. He became a guest on this show surfing's a big part of what i do and it's really such a joy for me to introduce it to so many of the listeners tell us a little bit about you brett simpson what did your dad do for a living how the hell did you become a surfer take us through the story that's a great question i uh my father actually
1: played professional football for uh eight years with the rams and buffalo bills bill simpson and I grew up playing a lot of sports, you know, a lot of ball sports, um, you know, football, soccer, baseball, the whole, the whole deal. And when I turned 12, um, I was playing a ton of baseball and my friend in the summer, we, we, we went surfing in Seal Beach and I don't know, that was it for me. I was, <laughs> <laughs> the next thing it was just, you know, I was begging them for a, a board. I got a board for Christmas and my dad was going, what the hell are you doing? and I just was hooked I don't know it was my it it was just fate calling I I just love the difficulty of surfing I couldn't believe how hard it was I was I was uh I was (laughs) brought to it by that like usually I could do everything pretty quick and surfing wasn't happening that quick so (laughs) I feel like that's what drew me so much and I became friends with uh a few people my age at the time, and they were kind of doing little contests. And I just love the lifestyle, the being in the ocean, the, the way you have to adapt every day to different conditions, and then getting to surf all these new breaks. And as I got better, I started to compete a lot more, and I, I was obviously having success. And, you know, by 18, kind of 17, 18, I you know, was going to Huntington Beach High School, had a great coach there, Mr. Verdone. And, you know, he let me off the leash and said, hey, I think you got what it takes. And he's an honest man. And that gave me that extra confidence to kind of go tackle the qualifying series. And and that wasn't easy. It took me, you know, a handful of years to qualify for the world tour. But um, I stuck with it. I dug deep. I, you know, figured out all my equipment, figured out all these new spots I was going. And I was able to make it. And I had six years on the world tour. I was able to win two U.S. Opens here in Huntington Beach. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my career. <laughs> it's, it's been a great ride. And now I'm, you
2: know, the coach of some of the best surfers in the world. Wow. That's great, Brett Simpson. I'm so proud of you. You know, for me, surfing, I'm a Jewish guy from New York. What the hell do I know about surfing? <laughs> Cupid, Cupid shot me in the chest just like you. And I said, what the hell just happened here? And I Mm. fell in love, and that's all. I I feel like that's the gift I give myself for working so hard and the rest of the things I do with my life. The metaphor for me of surfing is the nose of of the board is your future. The tail of the board is your past. But the surfer stands in the middle and learns to live in the moment. That's what's so special. And I just love talking with Jerry Lopez, who's a good friend of mine, it's saying things like, if you can buy it with money, it's cheap. You learn yeah. so much about life by surfing. Tell us a little bit about the women on the team, about Carissa Moore and Lakey Peterson. What's so special about these young girls on the team? Yeah, well, Carissa's the queen. She's just won her fourth world title.
1: Um, obviously, this year we've had the year off, but she is such a special talent she grew up similar she was a young prodigy from uh, Honolulu Hawaii and you know with all that pressure and all that fame so young is like kind of like John Town they've been able not a lot of people are able to withstand that and these two have been able to carry all that you know little bit of burden on their back that pressure and they've just you know, and it's been so special to watch her grow as a woman and she's a, uh, she's a special talent and she's still evolving, you know, and it, it's, uh, it's been an awesome ride to watch her and now be a part. It's going to be a fun week as we are going to be in Texas together. And then we also got Carolyn Marks. She's a young prodigy, 18 years old. From, she grew up in New Smyrna Beach, Florida, and now residing in uh, San Clemente, California. She's one of the most special girls. I think she was the youngest ever to qualify at 15. And um, she had a great year last year. She finished runner-up. So our girls on the U.S. team have been pretty dominant the last few years and um, pretty confident, you know, where
2: we're at and where we're going heading into the Olympic Games. Do the girls have a different relationship with the Wave versus the man?
1: Uh, you know, I would say the men, you know, in the bigger stuff are just more confident right now. It, mm-hmm. you know, when you're talking about some of the bigger waves, the girls have gotten a lot better and they're kind of pushing themselves t- towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just becomes in, in, you know, the, the normal everyday waves, it's just different lines and, and power, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think obviously the men have a little more power, but I've been very, you know, over the last five years, the level to which the women's have gone and where they're going has really stepped up, and mm. it's, been, it's been a real pleasure to see.
2: Well, Bretson, before I let you go, I just want you to know there is a young girl surfer. She's been a guest on this show who I am just so proud of and in love with, and it's Lily Culber. Keep your eye on Lily Culber. She may be on your team next time around. She's on, our, she's on our junior squad right now. I know Lily pretty well. She's yep. definitely making strides big time. I love it, Brett. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brett. How do we keep track of what you guys are doing? Is there a website? What do we have to do to track you? Yeah, usasurfing.org. And we'll
1: post a lot of stuff on there. And then on our Instagram is usasurfing as well. So we'll probably be updating through our you know, training camp in Texas soon. That starts on Monday afternoon, Um, and then, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where you can find most of the information.
2: Well, Brett Simpson, stay healthy, but I like to tell people, you're either pre-op or post-op. One day, you're going to need me, and it'll be my pleasure to help out. (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) All right, Brett. Thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. Yeah, thank you, doctor. See you soon. Okay. My pleasure. That's the great Brett Simpson, the coach of USA Surfing. Coming up next... The clinic will be open, the number is 710 espn But there is a shoulder surgery I did this week that I want to tell you about. And also, where do you get that maple glazed donut that blew my socks off? Best one I've ever had. I'll tell you where, coming up next on the Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN.
0: You're listening to the Weekend Warrior Show, presented by Cedar
4: Sinai. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant.
2: At 42 years old, you know what your new nickname is for me?
4: <laughs> Start your weekend off right. Listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper.
2: You're not Matthew from Santa Monica anymore. You're Mr. Priop. Every
4: Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Well I love that. Girl. Then you
2: Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. That song is from the 60s, Dirty Water, because we're talking about surfaces, how to master the surface. Michael Jackson did it with his moonwalk. Lee Trevino did it with his golf club, mastering the golf course. Brett Simpson is doing it with our surface, going to Waco, Texas, to master the kind of wave you'll see in Japan. Fascinating. That's why we're playing that song. Let's do a little clap revision for Von Miller, for the football fans and fantasy football fans about what exactly happened to Von Miller when he dislocated his perineal tendon. What does that mean? Well, when you roll your ankle to sprain your ankle, where your foot literally goes underneath your tibia, the ligament, which is a structure that bolts from the fibula bone to your foot Yes, that's what a sprained ankle is when you tear that ligament. But what he did was go beyond the sprain of the ligament. He damaged something else called the retinaculum. What is that? It's similar to a belt loop on your pants that tore so the belt now can come away from your pair of pants and your pants could fall down. But what's fascinating about the perineal tendons, which allow you to Rather than rolling your foot underneath your ankle, called inversion, the peroneal tendons allow you to rotate your foot the opposite direction, eversion. And there's two of them. There's actually three. There's a peroneus tertius, but there's the peroneus longus and the peroneus brevis. If you feel your ankle right now, the bone on the little toe side of your ankle is the fibula. And believe it or not, there is a channel carved out of the back of the fibula bone it's not a flat surface like a pencil your fibula bone it actually has a groove in the back that allows these kind of like a puppeteer with the strings moving the arms of the puppet those tendons are like the strings and they run their course in the back of the fibula bone in a groove that helps keep them located. It gives you this mechanical advantage of the tendon contracting, giving you the ability to fight gravity and evert your foot. Well, when Von Miller was playing, he rotated his foot like a sprained ankle, and he didn't damage the bone, but those cables, the tendons, those peroneal tendons that should live behind the fibula and are now held in place by not only the bony groove but by a belt loop above them better known as the retinaculum the retinaculum ripped the belt loop lipped of uh, uh, the belt loop tore and allowed the tendon to snap in front of the fibula you could feel it as an orthopedic surgeon when you examine someone and boy can you feel it as a patient extremely pa- uh, painful And you're not doing any lateral movement unless you've got your perineal tendons sitting behind or posterior to the fibula. So he had surgery yesterday. What's the surgery? Well, when you explore that dislocated tendon, the first thing you do is you put the tendon back in the groove and you see if you can repair the belt loop. How is that done? We drill little holes into the bone itself and pass stitches into the bone. Sometimes we use what's known as an anchor, a suture anchor, which is a genius idea, which is technology that's really in the recent history of orthopedic surgery, where we're able to put stitches into the ligament or the retinaculum and fire a dart with threads, a metal anchor into the bone where the stitches are attached to, to the anchor that is, the metal anchor, and the bite of the threads on the anchor keep that anchor from pulling out of the bone, except they have stitches attached to them, and that's a suture anchor. We'll use those to reattach the retinaculum, but if the reason this occurred is because the groove in the back of the fibula is too shallow it's not deep enough to allow those tendons to stay nicely back there, then one of my favorite operations is to deepen the groove. So you, in essence, this is sculpting. This is why I love sculpting in marble so much. You unroof the back of the bone of the fibula. You don't throw it away. You unroof it, and you almost make it like a door hinge. You then take a tool to scoop out. Once you've opened the door of the back of the fibula bone, you then can curette or scoop out like an ice cream scooper the marrow bone, which allows you then to put the door back on, but the door will now sink deeper into the back of the fibula, deepening the groove in the bone so the tendon can sit deeper there. And it's for that reason, those tendons will now not snap out of place again. That's the surgery that we do for the different degrees of dislocating peroneal tendons. You get put into a boot for usually about six weeks and then for a month, or I should say a cast for six weeks, and then you're put in a boot for a month after that. They're saying he's out for the whole season. Not so fast. I could easily see Von Miller returning to the field in three months. Maybe it'll be three and a half months. But I don't think his season is over. I think he will be back. So for you Denver Bronco fans, don't get depressed. I think you're going to be seeing him this season. Next week, let's talk about my guest next week. I'm so excited. His name is John McAtee and he owns Channel Island's prosthetics and orthotics. What does he do? He custom makes for patients who've needed an amputation because of diabetes out of control, getting poor circulation and needing their legs amputated for all kinds of reasons. But what I love most about this world of making braces for amputees is that they have not forgotten the Paralympic athlete. The patient who still wants to be active, that traumatically they lost their leg for whatever reason, and they still want to be active, they still want to run, run a marathon even. In the old days, you literally just made something that looked like your shin bone, and we put a fake foot and shoe on it so that cosmetically it looked like you still had a leg. But you're not going to be able to be active in jogging and running with that device. So a genius came along with the idea of making a device made of graphite. It does not look like a foot at all. It looks like a boomerang on its side. It looks like a crescent moon. It's called a cheetah. This device made of carbon fiber, so it has the bounce with a heel on it, allows someone who had a below the knee amputation to actually run in a marathon with a special kind of orthotic that John McAtee is an expert at making. And I wanna get into into it with him about what that's involved. The first thing he taught me that I never realized is they intentionally have to make this kind of brace to be longer than your other leg. So if you're just walking around the neighborhood, you're gonna walk with a limp because it's too long for your body. But it needs to be longer because if you actually start running, you need that additional length to actually even you out when you run. This whole idea of customizing a brace for an amputee has its own set of design issues. And you know how much I love the world of art, the world of sports, and the world of surgery. I'm already thinking, where do you see this customization in these fields? I got to do some research. Who made the car that Adam West drove, the Batmobile? And I'm not talking about the movies they make for billions of dollars now. I'm talking about Adam West and Burt Ward and that Batmobile because I have a sneaking suspicion that that car was tricked out by someone in Southern California. I wanna know who that is. Until next week, you'll be knowing what I'm thinking about. And go to Sue's Bakery. It's called Good Time Donuts in Ventura. Ask for Sue. Get the maple glazed donut and it will change your life. Tell him Dr. Clapper sent you. Until then, I'll see you on the radio. Boy.